Well, good morning, everyone. Well, just in case you're wondering if I'm going to give you an abbreviated holiday sermon, no. You're going to get the full meal deal this morning. We're going to actually finish up uh, our study of Joseph together this morning. And so we'll have a great time doing that. Uh, Next week, I do want to give you a heads up and let you know that you'll have the opportunity to hear some testimonies from folks within our church family uh, as they tell you about how they are learning to trust in the Lord like we've seen in our study of Joseph. So you don't want to miss that. It's going to be a great time of of celebration. And part of that testimony will be seen in the baptisms that we'll do uh, on Sunday. And so uh, it'll be a great time uh, of... uh, celebration together. But this morning we got some great things in store as well. So if you would, go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 46. Genesis chapter 46. Let me just remind you that where we left off last, Jacob and his family, as we learned, only 70 people strong, were making their way west from the land of Canaan into the land of Egypt. A land that Jacob knew was not a land of their own, but a land that God would provide. And so when they arrive, we see what I think is the first family reunion in the Bible. So if you will, turn to chapter 46, verse 28, and begin reading with me there. It says, Now he sent Judah before him to Joseph to point out the way before him to Goshen. And they came into the land of Goshen, and Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to Goshen to meet his father Israel. As soon as he appeared before him, he fell on his neck, embraced him, and wept a long time. Then Israel said to Joseph, Now let me die, since I have seen your face, and I know that you are still alive. A father and his long-lost son. Tears of joy flowed from their faces, and not a word was spoken until Jacob looked into the eyes of his son and said, I can die now, a happy man, knowing that I've seen you face to face, and you're alive and well. As we follow the passage on, we see that Joseph then turns to his entire family and tells him, now I would like to introduce you to the Pharaoh. As you can imagine, this was a significant privilege for these uh, shepherd uh, people who had never been in the presence of anyone to this magnitude. And, and with that, there was a certain etiquette and, and protocol that would need to be followed. And so Joseph explains to his family what they needed to do, mainly because everyone knew, including Joseph's family, that the Egyptians weren't real fond of of shepherds. In fact, if you look at verse 34, it says explicitly that shepherds were loathsome in the sight of Egyptians. And so one of the things that Joseph tells his brothers is, don't be afraid to tell Pharaoh when he asks about your occupation to be honest about what you do. He says, you're okay. You're safe in this land. You are my family and you can speak the truth. And that's exactly what they do. If you'll look at chapter 47, it describes this encounter with Joseph's family and the Pharaoh. So then Joseph went in and told Pharaoh and said, My father and my brothers and their flocks and their herds and all that they have have come 
out of the land of Canaan, and behold, they are in the land of Goshen. And he took five men from among his brothers and presented them to Pharaoh. Then Pharaoh said to his brothers, What is your occupation? So they said to Pharaoh, speaking honestly as Joseph had told them, Your servants are shepherds, both we and our fathers. And they said to Pharaoh, We have come to sojourn in the land. For there is no pasture for your servants' flocks, for the famine is very severe in the land of Canaan. Now, therefore, please let your servants live in the land of Goshen. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is at your disposal. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them live in the land of Goshen. And if you know any capable men among them, then put them in charge of my livestock as well. We are shepherds. And we have come to sojourn in the land. Now, I want you to think about that statement because it's significant in terms of what they say to the Pharaoh. Basically, they are telling him, we want you to know that we are not here to stay. That we are essentially just passing through and we would appreciate your kindness while we are here. Now, stop and think about that and ask yourself, why wouldn't they stay? I mean, Joseph has already told them, hey, when you get here, don't worry about bringing anything with you because I'm going to give you everything you could possibly need. We just read where Pharaoh said, give them the best possible land that Egypt has to offer in which they can raise their livestock. So what's wrong with this land? Why wouldn't they say, it seems like a pretty sweet deal to me? Well, it's because their response to Pharaoh is essentially a profession of their faith. Because God had promised the Israelites a land of their own, and they knew this was not that land. In fact, later on in that same chapter, Jacob would speak to his son Joseph and ask him to promise not to bury him in the land of Egypt, but to actually take his body back to the land of Canaan and bury him there. Because although the the Israelites would temporarily take up residence in Egypt, Jacob knew that one day God would be faithful to his promise and lead them back to the land of Canaan. And that's where he wanted his grave to be located. It's as if he's telling his family, I know I'm going to die in this place, but take me back to the promised land because I want to be there when you arrive. This is a profession of faith, is the conviction of God's faithfulness and the belief that his words are true. But while they're in Egypt, the the Israelites are given the land of Goshen. Now, what's interesting to me is that at the same time, Joseph's family is receiving all the provisions they need, all the livestock that they can manage, the best of the land that Egypt has has to offer, the exact opposite is happening everywhere else. You see, no one could possibly have seen nor endured a seven-year famine. And, And unless you have a huge store of money, which nobody would have had, there would be no possible way for you to survive for any length of time where your expenses exceed your income. Eventually, you're going to run out of money. And that's exactly what happens in Egypt. Look at 
verse 14. It says, And so Joseph gathered all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan for the grain which they bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. And when the money was all spent in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us food, for why should we die in your presence? For our money is gone. Then Joseph said, Give up your livestock, and I will give you food for your livestock, since your money is gone. Everyone runs out of money to buy food. And so Joseph allows them to trade their livestock for grain. And so the people come and they bring their horses. They bring their sheep and their cattle. And Joseph gives them grain in exchange for their livestock. But again, seven years is a long time. And so not only will they have run out of money during this time, they will also run out of animals as well. And so verse 18 tells us that the people come back to Joseph and they say, all we have left is our bodies and our land. And so Joseph buys up all the land in Egypt and gives the deed of ownership to Pharaoh. Even the people were considered his possession. But instead of making them slaves, the Scripture tells us that that Joseph then gives them seed to plant, instructing them to go back into their land, plant this seed, harvest, and give 20% back to Pharaoh, and the rest they can keep for their families. Now, you and I read this, and we might assume that this would make everyone a little bit bitter that somehow they would feel like they were being taken advantage of. They're giving everything over to Joseph, who is then giving it to Pharaoh. And they essentially own nothing from this point on. But I want you to look at their response. Look at verse 25. Verse 25, chapter 47 says... So they, the people of the land, said, You have saved our lives. Let us find favor in the sight of my Lord, and we will willingly be Pharaoh's slaves. You see, the people knew that they would be dead if it wasn't for Joseph. It would not have been possible for them to have anticipated, much less survive, a seven-year famine were it not for him. And so Joseph was not seen as a tyrant. As we see in this verse, he was being praised as a Savior. You have saved us, they said, and we are grateful to give you our service in exchange for our lives. Because from their perspective, they weren't being robbed, just the opposite. They were being blessed. They were given provisions that they didn't earn. Their lives were being preserved. And for that, they were eternally grateful. Their service was a response of their gratitude for the grace that they had been given. All the while. 
Joseph's reunited family continued to live under his personal protection and provision. (laughs) They became increasingly acquainted with each other as a family. And chapter 48 describes one of those encounters that, that Jacob actually has with his two grandsons, the oldest of Joseph's family, two boys named Ephraim and Manasseh. In this conversation, Jacob describes a dream that he had where God once again reiterates his promise to build a great nation, a people who will live in that land of promise that he will provide. And in this land, God directs Jacob to give his son Joseph a double portion. Now, when he does that, he is treating Joseph As a firstborn son, this is a very special right and privilege to have double what any of the other sons would have been given. And Jacob explains to Joseph and tells him that that his inheritance will essentially be given to his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. I want you to look at chapter 48 and read with me beginning in verse 3 where Jacob explains this. So Jacob says to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me. And he said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and numerous, and I will make you a company of peoples and will give this land to your descendants after you for an everlasting possession. Let me just pause here and just tell you how that's fulfilled. Remember, there's 70 people in the land of Israel that are traveling into the land of Egypt. If you look at the census that is taken at Mount Sinai about 230 years later, there are over 2 million Israelites. 2 million. God's promise fulfilled. Look at verse 5. And now your two sons were born to, who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are. But your offspring that have been born after them shall be yours. You, they shall be called by the names of their brothers in their inheritance. So when you go look at a map of Israel now, and you go back to the Old Testament times, and you look for the 12 tribes of Israel, count them, because you're going to count 13. That's because Joseph was given a double portion. One of the things you'll also notice as you look at that map is that Manasseh, the younger of the two brothers, actually has about twice as much land, and probably more than that, than the the older brother, Ephraim. And Jacob actually tells them that this would in fact be the case. He's speaking to them about what is to come, and he tells them exactly that. If you would, look at verse 13. It says, And Joseph took them both... Ephraim and at his right hand towards Israel's left and Manasseh with his left hand toward Israel's right and brought them close to him. But Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, that is the younger, who was the younger, and his left hand on Manasseh's head, crossing his hands, although Manasseh was the firstborn. (laughs) Now, Scripture tells us that that Joseph saw what was happening here, and he knew that his dad was old and he was losing his eyesight, so he thought, well, dad's making a mistake. He doesn't realize who's in front of him, so he tries to take his hand off of 
uh, of the younger and put it on the older so that the right hand of blessing went to the oldest son as was tradition. But he wasn't making a mistake. He was talking about what God would do in the future and it would be truth. Look at verse 18. And Joseph said to his father, Not so, my father, for this one is the firstborn. Place your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people and also shall be great. However, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his descendants shall become a multitude of nations. So, so Jacob wasn't trying to pull a fast one on his son. He was speaking the truth about God, what God would do. And, and what God says is true will always come to pass. And no one knew that better than Joseph. And so he accepted what his father had to say. And with that, Jacob then turns from his grandsons to his own sons and gives each of them a blessing as well. Chapter 49 is what describes that encounter between Jacob and each of his sons. And if you look at those, it'd be a fun study to do sometime. Go through and see what he says to each of those sons and then look at it in the context of the historical record of Scripture and you will find that every single one of them comes to pass. But, but there's one in particular that's increasingly significant to you and I. Look over at chapter 49. And begin reading with me in verse 8 when Jacob speaks to his son, Judah. This is what he says. He says, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down to you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He couches, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion who dares, rouse him up. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. He ties his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He washes his garments with wine and his robes and the blood of grapes. His eyes are dull from wine and his teeth white from milk. It describes Judah as a lion, a single of kingship. You know that a lion is the king of the beasts. It symbolizes rulers. And Jacob is giving a prophecy that, that Judah will be a royal tribe and that the scepter, that lawgiver's staff, will not depart from his hand. Until Shiloh comes, he says, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. Now, this is a key verse in this passage, this conversation that Judah is having, or Jacob is having with his son Judah. And because of that reason, there's a lot of opinions as to what this means. Beginning with, who in the world is Shiloh? The context seems to indicate that it is a person because of all the pronouns, even going as far as to say that all the nations will obey him. But the Hebrew word for Shiloh is not a personal name. It is a relative pronoun, meaning to whom it belongs. So for that reason, Jacob is telling Judah that his, royal, his will be a royal tribe. 
and the scepter shall not depart from his hand until it is held by the one to whom it belongs. And to this person, he says, all the nations will bow in obedience to his righteous and rightful reign. Any guesses as who that is? Let me help you. Turn to Philippians. Keep your hand here, but turn to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. We looked at this passage last fall when we went through Philippians, so you'll remember it. But let me read it to you just to be sure. Philippians chapter 2, verse 9. It says in verse 9, Therefore also God highly exalted him, speaking of Jesus, and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. You see, in faith, Jacob gave a prophecy of one who would come forth from the tribe of Judah, a king to whom all nations would one day bow and to whom the ruling scepter belongs, and he will reign forever. This is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He is the one of whom Jacob spoke. And because God is faithful to his promises, you and I now live in the realm of grace under the rightful rule of Jesus, our King. Like the Israelites, we too are just sojourning. We are living in a land that is not our own, it is not our home. There is a promise of a kingdom that will come. And that is what we are living for. And so when Jacob is speaking to his sons, I hope you see that he has a message for you and I as well. The scripture says that these were the last words that Jacob spoke. After speaking to his sons, he drew his last breath and he died. In chapter 50, we'll describe what, in my opinion, sounds like the greatest funeral procession that has ever been seen. Look at Genesis chapter 50, if you would, verse 7. Genesis chapter 50, verse 7. So Joseph went up to bury his father, and with him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders in the land of Egypt. And all the household of Joseph and his brothers and his father's household. They left only their little ones and their flocks and their herds in the land of Goshen. They also went up with him with both chariots and horsemen. And it was a very great company. So Pharaoh just didn't send Joseph out on his own with his small little family. He sent the most important people of his household to go with him. In fact, when the Canaanites witnessed this procession making its way through the land, they knew that something significant had happened in Egypt. Apparently, it was a sight to behold. So Joseph fulfills that promise that he made to his father. He buries him in the land of Canaan, and they all travel back 
to the land of Egypt. And when they do, Joseph's brothers do something that I personally never saw coming. I was ready for this happy ending to what has been a great story, but then something changes. Look back at chapter 50 and read with me beginning in verse 15. For when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, What if Joseph should bear a grudge against us and pay us back in full for all the wrong which we did to him? So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father charged before, charged before he died, saying, Thus you shall say to Joseph, Please forgive, I beg you, the transgressions of your brothers and their sin, and for they did for they did you wrong. Now, let me just pause there and say, I don't think that happened. I think Jacob accepted the forgiveness given to the family. They're just trying to cover themselves. Look what they go on to say. And now, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Then his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for am I in God's place? And as for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result, to preserve many people alive. So, therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. So he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. This is almost unimaginable to me. It's been 17 years since Jacob's family moved into the land of Egypt, and Joseph has done nothing but support and encourage and love his brothers and their families. And for that reason, I'm convinced that their fear is irrational and based more on what they deserve instead of the reality of what they have received. Because instead of trusting in God, they had shifted their focus to their own guilt. Instead of living in the realm of God's grace, they chose to earn their protection from the one they believe ultimately held their life in his hands, their brother Joseph. They looked at Joseph as if he was God, and I believe this is what made their brother weep. He... Joseph speaks to them, both words of comfort and I think some rebuke when he tells them, do not be afraid, for am I in God's place? In other words, can't you see that that my decisions, whether they're good or, or bad decisions, will impact your life only in a way that God intends? Your future is in his hands, not mine. And then he turns and says, just look at your own decisions. For even though you meant evil against me, God meant it for good. He's trying to tell his brothers, fear God, not me. He's the one in control, regardless of the actions that I or anyone else might take. And as disappointing as this must have been to Joseph, causing him to to come to that place of tears, he doesn't seem to have a breaking point. Because as we read, the the text tells us that instead of demeaning or, or criticizing his brothers for their weak faith, he comforts them and speaks kindly to them. 
And I believe even in his own death, Joseph gives his brothers an example to follow. Look at verse 24. And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will surely take care of you and bring you up from this land to the land which he has promised on oath to Abraham, to Isaac, and to our father Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely take care of you, and you shall carry my bones up from here. So Joseph died at the age of 110 years, and he was embalmed and placed in a coffin in the land of Egypt. By faith, Joseph reminds his brothers that Egypt was not their home. Take my bones, he tells them, and bury me in the land of promise where we buried my father, where someday you will be. Both he and his father Jacob were convinced that God was faithful, and they chose to see the future through eyes of faith, leading their family to to trust in the Lord and to walk in the ways that he prepared beforehand and promised to carry through. In fact, turn, if you would, to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. I want you to read with me beginning in verse 21. These two verses speak directly to what we've just looked at this morning. Look at what it says. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 21. It says, By faith Jacob, as he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshipped, leaning on the staff, on the top of his staff. Why was it faith? Because he was looking to the future of things that he couldn't see, that he knew would be true because God had promised and had told him, give a double portion to Joseph because that will be his in the land that I promised. Verse 22. By faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the exodus of the sons of Israel and gave orders concerning his bones. Joseph was essentially the ruling king underneath Pharaoh in the land of Egypt. He had everything he could possibly want. His family had every provision they could possibly need. But he said, this is not our home. God has promised to deliver us from this land to a land of promise. Put my bones there. I'll be waiting on you when you get there. Jacob and his son Joseph have learned to live by faith, not in what they could see, but in what they hoped for because of their trust in the promises of God. They learn to live peacefully in the realm of God's amazing grace. And as we think about that, I think you and I should be challenged to do the same. Because according to Jacob's prophecy, the scepter will not depart from the tribe of Judah until it is held in the hand of the one to whom it belongs. Jesus is the authority to whom it belongs and by virtue of his death, his burial, and his resurrection. According to the Scripture, he is the one who is seated at the right hand of the Father, far above all rule and all authority, all power, and all dominion. And so what that means for you and I is that when we surrender our life to Christ, we are transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into his marvelous light by faith. We are living in the realm of grace. So I just need to ask you, do you believe that is true? 
Do you believe it's true? And let me just encourage you to consider that question and realize that you don't have to answer it with the words of your mouth because you will answer it with how you live your life. More specifically, where there is grace, you will always find peace. Remember, Joseph's brothers stepped out of grace, and what happened? They became ruled by fear, didn't they? And when you and I fall into that same trap, we can, like them, choose to to see God in view of what we deserve rather than the freedom that comes by accepting what He has done. Because of His sacrifice on the cross, we know that He has declared that we when we put our trust in Him, no longer get what we deserve. You realize that? Scripture says, Now therefore there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Condemnation is what we deserve. But grace and forgiveness is what we receive. It says that in Him we have redemption through His blood. The forgiveness of our sins according to the riches of His grace, which He lavishes upon us. We don't deserve any of that. But it is the gift we receive when we live in the realm of grace. That's why the Bible says that fear cannot reign where grace abounds. There's no fear in judgment. There's no fear for your future. There's no fear of what others may do. Because in God's grace, He is able to use both the good and the evil intent of mankind, holding them responsible for their decisions, but working all things together for the good of those who love Him and those who are called to His purposes. We forfeit peace only when we take our eyes off of what He has done and focus on, instead on what we think we must do. Because... If you think about it, and this really struck me as I considered our passage this morning, we're really not all that different than the land, than the people who lived in the land under Joseph's rule. They were in a place, in the midst of a famine, where they would perish if it weren't for his provision. They had no money, no livestock, no land. And yet, instead of responding in bitterness, they responded in gratitude. Joseph was not a tyrant to them. He was a savior. And their faithful service was the evidence of their grateful hearts. The same is true for you and I. We owe God everything. The Bible says very clearly that we perish if it weren't for His provision of forgiveness and grace through the cross. We have nothing to offer. And yet He has everything to give. We are not coerced. We are not manipulated. Because God is not a tyrant. He is our Savior. Our response to God should be exactly what we read in our passage this morning. You have saved us. And our life of obedience is evidence of our gratitude. You see, when we live with this kind of perspective, we understand that 
We're the ones who are living in the realm of grace. We are the ones who are being blessed with provisions that we don't deserve and we couldn't earn. We are the ones who are being blessed with things that we can't receive apart from Him. We are the ones who are being sheltered by His sovereign control. And this should give us peace. Even in the midst of difficult circumstances. And such is the case for those who learn to live in the realm of grace. Let me remind you that we live in a world that is in the midst of a devastating spiritual famine. People that you live around and people that you work with and play with are starving for the truth that you've heard this morning. So let me be one to encourage you to lead people to the source of your hope, to introduce them to your provider, your redeemer, our Savior, Jesus Christ. They are starving. And you have something to tell them about where they can be satisfied with unlimited grace. Please make sure you're diligent to lead them to the cross where that is found. Because remember, we perish without him. In closing, let me say to you, as Paul wrote to the Galatians when he says, Grace to you and peace from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins so that he might rescue us from this present evil age, according to the will of God our Father, to whom be the glory forevermore until he takes us home to the land that he's promised. Won't that be a great day? If you would, stand with me and let's pray together. God, we are grateful for the promise of your redemption. We recognize that we perish without you, that we owe you everything. And very literally, you have given us everything in the life of your son, Jesus Christ, who died, who was buried, and who rose again and is now seated at the right hand of the Father. He is the one to whom the scepter belongs. And in His hand, He will rule righteously for all eternity, where every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Father, in response to what we have been lavishly given through faith and trust in you. May we live a life of obedience, not because you're a tyrant, but because you are our Savior. And we are grateful to serve you with all of our heart, with all of our soul, and with all of our mind because of what we have been given in you far beyond what we could ever ask or deserve. May we live in peace in the realm of your amazing grace. It's in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior and King, that we pray. Amen.